And welcome back, everyone, to Exploring Faith, Pursuing Grace. My name is Daniel Rogers, and I'm here today with Shane Claiborne of Red Letter Christians. Shane, how are you today? I'm doing good, man. It's good to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. Of course, man. It is uh, good to be with you as well. Uh, from reading Irresistible Revolution and following you on uh, Twitter, seeing all of your uh, your cool outfits and your skiing and everything, I've, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long, long time. So I just yeah, uh, me too, man. Yeah, thank you for thank you for all you do, and thank you for your uh, your activism and your courage and just the great impact you've had on so many lives. I appreciate that so much. So, well, Shane. I've talked to you a little bit already, but one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on today is because uh, there's a, you know, there's a fad going on in the world of deconstruction. Uh, some, a lot of people have experienced uh, extreme uh, cases of loss or maybe uh, extreme cases of love that have pushed them into that deconstruction. Others are simply uh, latching onto that word and using it and, you know, trying to figure out what all this is and what people are doing. <laughs> And what I wanted to do in my podcast is talk about some of those things from time to time, but also talk about what faith could look like on the other side of that, right? What what are we for, not just what are we against? And one thing that really became important for me a few years ago when I started my own faith journey was uh, the question, what does it mean to be pro-life? Uh, I, I grew up in a very uh, conservative household both religiously and um, politically. And so when I began to try to uh, grapple with uh, what some people call a consistent life perspective, I obviously ran into questions about what do we do with the death penalty? What do we do with war? You know, what do we do with uh, violence of any kind, right? Someone walks up to you and punches you in the face. How do you respond to that, right? Or someone breaks into your house, you know, how, how might we handle that situation? And I thought that'd be no no better person to bring on uh, than yourself, just because of all the work that you not only have put out uh, in terms of writing and podcasts and interviews and lectures, but also real life examples, uh, things that you've witnessed, uh, experiences that you've had in, on being in the front line, so to speak, of this push for a uh, for a world that takes Jesus seriously when he said to love our enemies and that God causes the rain and the sun to shine on the both on both the just and the unjust. So Shane, uh, for those who who maybe don't know you, uh, why don't you spend a few moments here sort of introducing yourself, maybe telling a little bit of your story. And you can even take this time if you'd like to point people to some resources that uh, you think they should know about, websites you have, social media accounts, anything like that. Yeah, well, thanks, Daniel. And, I, you know, I grew up down in East Tennessee in uh, the kind of Bible belt, uh, fell in love with Jesus. And the deeper I fell in love with Jesus, the more aware I became of some of the contradictions uh, in the church and even within myself. You know, I grew up, especially in high school, um, using the language pro-life. But I saw how narrowly we had defined that really to the issue of abortion and, you know, the, the kind of deep irony that you can be pro-guns, pro-military, pro-death penalty, and still say you're pro-life as long as you're, you know, against abortion. And I was one of those folks, you know, um, and, and in many ways, I think we would be more accurate to say we're pro-birth or anti-abortion than pro-life because of um uh, how we sort of siloed that into the one issue. And so I, I, I didn't want to be less pro-life. I wanted to be more pro-life. I wanted to be more comprehensive and uh, to expand that to other issues. Uh, so what happened for me is I began to uh, lean into the early church, especially, and they had this powerful uh advocacy for life they were they you know as you read books like the early christians in their own words uh you can download that from eberhard arnold it's just you know the early christians first 300 years their teachings on life and death and you see uh what what champions they were and they spoke on every issue they spoke out against the death penalty they did speak about abortion like eight different early christians wrote about that and a dozen different works, but they also spoke against militarism and war. They spoke against the gladiatorial games, which they saw as sort of a grotesque 
um, celebration of violence in their particular culture. Um, and, you know, one one real poignant example is Cyprian, who became one of the, the bishops in the early church. And Cyprian said, when an individual kills another person, we all call it evil, as we should. But why then do we sanctify it when the state does it and we call it justice or we call it, you know, holy? Um, and, and whether it's the death penalty or militarism, uh, we, we often give license to the state that we would never give to an individual. And the early Christians didn't did that, do that. They said, you know, it's evil to kill, whether it's done by an individual or by a governor or a president or an emperor. Uh, it, no one's exempt from this sort of divine command from God that thou shalt not kill. And of course, I, I really see Jesus as the ultimate manifestation of that. Um, he interrupts an execution of a woman, you know, caught in adultery. Uh, and he says, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. Uh, he scolds Peter when Peter picks up the sword to try to protect Jesus. And, uh, you know, Peter says, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Put that away. The early Christians said they interpreted that as the ultimate triumph over the logic of redemptive violence. Tertullian said, when Jesus disarmed Peter, he disarmed every one of us who would call ourselves a Christian. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's what I began to see. And, you know, it's why I went on to kind of dive deeper on some of these issues and wrote Executing Grace on the death penalty and uh, co-wrote beating guns on gun violence because i saw on these two issues in particular christians have have not been the champions of life we've actually been the obstacles and when it comes to the death penalty christians um are the biggest supporters of the death penalty in america despite having an you know executed and risen savior at the center of our faith uh, Ninety-five percent of executions happen in the Bible Belt, uh, in states like Tennessee, where Christians are governors and legislators, and we still have the electric chair in Tennessee. In fact, we brought it back during Holy Week, during the week that we remember Easter and the ex, you know the, the the death of Jesus on Good Friday. So we we kind of missed the point of this, you know, um, and and uh, when when it comes to guns. The highest gun-owning demographic in America are evangelical Christians. Christians own guns at a higher rate than the, the general population. So, you know, I think the gun and the cross give us two very different versions of power. One of them says, I'm willing to die, and the other says, I'm willing to kill. I, I think it becomes really, really difficult to reconcile Jesus's command to love our enemies with some of the other ideas of standing our ground and, you know, ridding the world of evil and some of the things that we kind of hear in our culture. Wow. Yeah. You know, uh, Wendell Berry in his recent book, The Need to Be Whole, he said it clearly would not do to allow a religious scruple to stand in the way of war and capital punishment, which, after all, are necessities of life. <laughs> uh you know, yeah. making uh, it's a little a little sarcasm there, but it's interesting. Like like you say, you know, we are supposed to be Christians. We're supposed to be Jesus followers, uh, ordinary uh, radicals, as you say. And yet, when it comes to this command to love our enemies and to not kill, we maybe not allow that on an individual level, but we give all the permission in the world uh, to governments and to uh, so-called justice systems to to execute, to destroy, and to take lives. And when uh, someone does this on an individual level, uh, we may condemn it in, in one sense, but we also say things like, well, I understand why they would do that. Uh, you know, of, of course, anybody, anyone would do that in that situation. And yet here every Sunday, we praise a savior who, when put in that very situation, who had all the capabilities in the world, all, all authority, he says, uh, to call legions of angels to take over the legions of Rome. Uh, he chooses death. Uh, he would rather die for his enemies uh, than take uh, their lives. And that's, 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 that's a powerful message uh, and a challenging message uh, for us today, for sure. 
So yeah, and I, I think we need more courage from Christians uh, on these issues because if we really believe that every person is made in the image of God, then any time a life is crushed uh, or destroyed, it's uh, it's erasing and damaging of uh, the the image of God in the world. So you know, gun violence right now it, during the pandemic over the last couple of years became the number one cause of death of American children. For many years, it's been the number one cause of death of African-American children who are 10 times more likely to die than, uh, than, than American children in general, white kids and others. Uh, but in the pandemic, I mean, it, it now is more than car accidents, more than cancer. It's, it, it, it's taking the lives of our kids. And so we can't say that we're pro-life and ignore gun violence. In my lifetime, I'm 47 years old. We've had more lives lost to guns in my lifetime domestically than in all of the casualties of all of America's wars combined. Uh, you know, so, and I think when, when it comes to the death penalty, we're one of the only countries still in the world that executes people. When I was born in 1975, most of the world was still executing people. But just in this generation, we've seen most of the world abolish the death penalty. And we're one of the few countries that still executes its own people. And the company that we keep are, are not the champions of human rights. So, you know, China is the number one executor in the world. And then you have Saudi Arabia, Iran, Iraq, uh, Yemen is usually in there. So um, I, I believe, you know, we will look back uh, at the death penalty, like we look back at slavery, you know, appalled um, yeah. and, sh you know, with, with shame and, and also scratching our heads, thinking, how did Christians justify this? So I think this is a role, as Dr. King says, for the church to be the conscience of our nation and to stand up to champion uh, the lives lost to guns and the lives that are being taken by the state when it comes to the death penalty. So a lot of our listeners are uh, well-versed in scripture, I would say. They, uh, they've they studied from a young age, you know, they did the sword drills and everything like that growing up and whatnot. Yeah. And so I want to ask a question that that uh, was presented to me uh, to ask to you, and that is this. So, well, I mean, I'm gonna pre I'll preface it in this way. You mentioned slavery, and I think that's an excellent example because I have a book on my shelf right here uh, written in the – early part of the of the 20th century that documents pro-slavery arguments uh, used in the 1800s from both scientific standpoint uh, or pseudo-scientific standpoint, but also a religious standpoint, uh, what scriptures they used, what moral arguments they tried to use to justify slavery. And I can I know that uh, some of our listeners undoubtedly are thinking of one passage in particular right now, which I would say would be uh, Romans chapter 13 you know, the, uh, that, uh, rulers are, uh, not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you wish to have no fear of, of the authority? Then do what is good and you'll receive its approval. And he talks about how they bear the sword of God and, uh, you know, have, have the authority and they, they have the authority to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. What, what would you say to someone, a concerned Christian who may say, well, Shane, this passage seems to say that, uh, that the government is meant to bear the sword and, and execute, execute God's wrath on a wrongdoer. How might you respond to that? Yeah, well, these are really important questions. And I, you know, a part of why I have a lot of patience to engage them is because I used some of these same scriptures when I defended the death penalty and yeah. studied the scripture and really felt like uh, the death penalty was ordained by God. And then I took a closer look, you know, and you start to see some of the holes in our own theology. For instance, it's very important that Romans was written by Paul. And just as he writes Romans 13, that we're to submit to the authorities. In Ephesians, he uses the same word for authority as we as he as he writes that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the authorities of this world. And so there's this tension in Paul that the very one that says we're to respect the authorities is ultimately jailed and convicted uh, and, and tortured for subverting the authorities. Uh, so, you know, we Christians have always had 
this paradoxical tension with state power. Yeah. And um, we realize that it can be misused, you know? And even when I was in Iraq, it was very interesting to think like, what does it look like to read scriptures like this under the rule of Saddam Hussein? Um, did did God put Saddam Hussein in power? You know, um, even for Christians, is every authority put in power by God? You know, do we equally believe that Obama <laughs> and George Bush were both ordained by God? Do we believe that Hitler was ordained by God? So I think we can all see that there are um, authorities that were undermining God's most perfect dream. Um yeah. And and that there's always a time for Christians to practice what I like to call revolutionary subordination. So it's a it, it sees that our ultimate allegiance is to God. And when the authorities of this world get in the way of God's law to love, we obey God. That's exactly what the early Christians did in the book of Acts. And it's a, why they were accused of insurrection. And people said they're obeying, they're claiming another emperor than Caesar. They're, you know, they're causing trouble all over the empire. Um, so Augustine, St. Augustine said, an unjust law is no law at all. You know, like Gandhi and Martin Luther King, many of the early Christians saw that it is our job to disobey the unjust laws as much as it's our, it's our duty to obey the just laws. And I think according to Romans 13, the way we pay homage to the state is by willfully going to jail and suffering the consequences when we disobey the unjust laws. So we have a whole history from the Boston Tea Party to the Civil Rights Movement, the Underground Railroad, you know, all kinds of stories of holy revolutionary subordination, of exposing unjust laws. Um, and when it comes to the death penalty in our country, it's important to realize that we've evolved on this. Um, that in the Salem witch trials, we had all sorts of other laws that were um, were, were death-worthy laws, according to the colonies in the United States. Witchcraft, sorcery, forms of sexual immorality were all deemed um, as, as worthy of death, and we executed people for them. Um, when you look at the, the Hebrew scriptures, where we get kind of our framework for the death penalty, capital murder wasn't the only death worthy crime, but there's over there's dozens, over 30 uh, things, including working on the Sabbath law, uh, Sabbath day and disrespecting your parents. So not many people are going to argue that we should bring the Levitical, you know, kind of Old Testament death penalty back. Um but that it's a good thing that we have limited executions uh, in the United States. Um, you know, race is a big part of this too. We executed African-American folks for laws, for, for allegedly breaking laws that it wasn't even illegal for white folks to do, you know, um, uh, interracial dating, or as we called it, race mixing. You know, these were capital crimes for black folks that they weren't even crimes at all in many places uh, for white folks. So it's important to realize that there, there's an entire dynamic of race that's at play with all of this, that where the same states that held on to slavery the longest are the states that hold on to the death penalty. Where lynchings were happening 100 years ago uh, is exactly where uh, executions continue to take place today. So there's this idea, you know, that's kind of accompanies the the death penalty, which is also rooted in scripture that, you know, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which was an ancient framework for thinking about justice that allowed for reciprocal harm. If someone poked your eye out, you could poke their eye out, but you did it exactly how they had done it to you. So if they poked your left eye out, you poke their right, their, their left eye out well, if they broke your arm, you could break their arm. Uh, and yet we've evolved beyond that, you know, to where we really believe that the best version of justice is not returning harm. You know, our parents teach us two wrongs don't make a right. We, we don't rape people who rape to show that rape is wrong. 
And yet when it comes to capital crimes, we still hold out that logic that we're going to kill to try to show that killing is wrong. And we end up mirroring the very evil that we're trying to denounce. You know, we teach our children that violence is, a, you know, is a, you can retort violence with violence. But that's where Jesus shines so brightly is he knows this ancient framework. And he says, you know, you've heard it said, Moses told you this, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And Jesus says, but I tell you this. And he's going to invite us to imagine a version of justice where we don't even return harm for harm, where we transcend uh, evil with love. Uh, and, and so that idea of an eye for an eye was called lex talionis, and it's where we get the notion of retaliation from. And Jesus, I think, stands in stark contrast to that as he shows us that we can uh, live in an evil world without mirroring that evil ourselves. Yeah. Uh, that's why my Jewish friends, they think it's really ironic. One of my, my very conservative uh, rabbinical friends says, it's largely Christians that misconstrue the Hebrew Bible uh, in order to justify the death penalty. And then he says, and the irony is, you all have Jesus to reconcile it all with, you know? Um, and Jewish folks have largely been abolitionists, even after the Holocaust. They had this, what's often called violence fatigue, this sense that violence is the problem, not the solution. And I think that's the real conviction that we need to walk away with, is that that um, violence doesn't solve the violence. And we can honor the lives lost to violence without mirroring that violence. Violence, you know, it is the disease, not the cure. Yeah, one one of our commenters on social media, uh, she she talks about how on one side of her, what she calls her human side, she feels like, you know, there's monsters out there that uh, she uses the term unalive, <laughs> those horrendous monsters. But she says, but on the other side, Jesus is saying to her, uh, my grace is sufficient, you know, turn the other cheek. Maybe we shouldn't go that path. And so it's a big struggle for her uh, living in the culture that she does to, rec you know, to um, reconcile those two sides, you know, to try to come up with, you know, what is the solution here? And this sort of leads into another question then. If you have someone who is convicted of the, uh, you know, of, of convicted of murder and they're put on death row and they have a date set for their execution, what would be, what, what would be the alternative uh, to that that would be a way to restore them uh, instead of just uh, having sort of retaliation sort of system, what would be what would what would a restorative system look like in that in that instance? Do you think? Yeah, in bringing up Jesus because I I think Jesus is the lens through which we interpret Scripture, uh, right. and, and as Jesus Himself said, you know He's he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And that's why it makes so much sense that if this ancient law of an eye for an eye was meant to stop the spiral of violence, and it was to, to be a license for violence, you know, Jesus and Jesus makes it unmistakable that he said, I have not come for the healthy, but for the sick. You know, he, he didn't come for the righteous, but for the sinners. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. I mean, this is the gospel. And that's why the Methodist Church has a really powerful statement that capital punishment ultimately denies the power of Jesus to mm -hmm. redeem, restore, and transform every human being. That's a really powerful statement. And yeah. and, and I, I think that, um, you know, in the end, the question raised by the death penalty is who anyone beyond redemption? And there are people that are capable of horrific evil. And I think of someone like Dylan Roof, who went into a manual AME church and he he killed uh, the, these incredible people in the middle of their you know, a historic African American church that welcomed him in, held his hand as they prayed.
pulled out weapons and began to kill them. Uh, and in his own mind, he wanted to start a race war. I mean, this was racially driven hatred. But, you know, you may remember, as, as I do, that the families that, as they responded after the Emmanuel Nine were killed, folks like Reverend Sharon Risher, uh, who spoke out against the death, even for Dylan Roof. And at the heart of their message is the idea that God's love is bigger than Dylan Roof's hatred. And we have to believe that there's the possibility that Dylan Roof's heart could be transformed by Christ. Now, I think Dylan Roof right now is unrepentant and is imminently dangerous. So people need to be protected from his hatred. But we also believe that God's grace is bigger than Dylan Roof's hatred and that, that you know, grace could be the word in this story. And certainly the families of the Emmanuel Nine So, you know, when I think of the death penalty, we often have this idea that we need it in order to kill the worst of the worst. But the truth is, that's not who we are executing. Uh, we're not killing the worst of the worst. We're usually killing the poorest of the poor mm. and disproportionately people of color. And what determines who actually gets executed in America is not the atrocity of the crime. But it's arbitrary things like the resources of the defendant, um, the race of the victim. When the victim is white and the defendant is a person of color, it overwhelmingly take, uh, you know, tilts the table towards execution. So you think of some of the worst crimes in America. Um, Charles Manson didn't get the death penalty. Jeffrey Dahmer didn't get the death penalty. Um, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, uh, didn't get the death penalty. He he was you know a Harvard graduate and had resources. And so I don't wish that they were killed. I'm just pointing out that you know we we have this idea that we're going to kill the worst of the worst, but that's not in reality what ends up happening. And to hold out the death penalty means that we end up um, killing a lot of people. Um, in fact, in the modern era of the death penalty, we've killed uh, over 1,500 people. And if you look at what is consistent in those, as as uh, Sister Helen Prejean says, uh, there are no rich people on death row. Um, and, and you end up seeing that people with mental struggles, people with limited resources, overwhelmingly end up facing execution. And there is the, the issue of innocence, right? For every eight executions that have been carried out, there's been one exoneration. That's one person sentenced to die that was able to prove their innocence and is now free. You know, that's not a good track record. You know, for every no. nine planes that took off, if one of them crashed, we would be like, wow, we've, we've got a major problem, you know? So that's why a lot of folks end up questioning the power of the state, right? That this is, uh, and it's why there's a movement of conservatives that are concerned about the the this this power we give the state to kill because we know that the criminal justice system is an imperfect human system and you can't bring someone back from the dead right so when you look at the the death penalty you do have to eventually ask the question how many innocent people are we willing to kill to keep it in place to for those extreme cases you know uh which you know end up being it's so rare that I, I believe we can keep people safe from someone who's eminently dangerous. And that's why the Catholic Church and much of the world has said we have alternatives to the death penalty, right? We don't have to keep killing in order to keep people safe from someone who may be dangerous. And we have lots of ways that we can do that. I also believe, as you mentioned, the word restorative. That, you know, in scripture, the word justice and righteousness are connected. And it's been said that the best translation for the concept of justice in scripture is restorative justice. 
And we, we kind of often have a framework of criminal justice that the framework is what did they do wrong and what punishment did they deserve for the crime? But restorative justice, God's justice, is asking a different set of questions. It's asking what harm was done and how do we heal the harm that was done? And might we even leave room for the person who may have done the harm to be healed from some of the wounds that they've endured or inflicted on other people? Yeah. So I believe in restorative justice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, you talked about innocent people who have uh, even died on death row, uh, like Joe Arity, you know, the case back from the 1930s, the mentally handicapped uh, boy who was uh, coerced into making a confession for a crime he did not commit. And, you know, the people that were close to him <laughs> knew that he didn't commit it, and yet he was executed regardless. And so my answer to your question, how many innocent people are we allowed to kill, you know, and keep the death penalty going? The answer should be zero, right? One innocent death should reveal the whole system to be extremely, extremely cruel and problematic and, you know, worthy of <laughs> barring forever and ever. Now, there is uh, one other thing you mentioned about restorative justice. I don't remember the young man's name. Uh, it was back in 28, 2018, I believe. Um, he was from a Church of Christ background, interestingly enough. He was from Heritage Christian. He was uh, in the choir. I believe he lived in Arkansas. And the police officer um, went into the wrong apartment, was, I think was the story, and she shot and killed this young man. Um, I don't know if you remember that story from six years ago or so. But I remember at the trial, uh, his family stood up and forgave her right there in the trial. And that was such such a powerful, powerful moment. And to, to, like you said, to leave room for things like that, you know, for opportunities for, for forgiveness, for reconciliation, uh, for a path of renewal is, is the Jesus way. And as you mentioned before, uh, that quote from the Methodist church, I believe it was where the death penalty is pretty much taking away the opportunity for Jesus to do his thing through the gospel, <laughs> you know, yeah. for Jesus to draw all people to himself. Um, and I, I guess you would say the same thing about, um, about innocent deaths and, and wars, uh, you know, well, of course we could talk about what, what that word innocent even means. Um, you know, when you think about people who fight on both sides of the wars and the ways they may have been coerced or uh, manipulated or drawn into doing that. Uh, but regardless, whenever someone dies in war, you know, how many innocent children have to perish before we, speak out against those things as Christians. You know, like you said, I love this illustration about the airplane, that if one out of every airplane's crashed, we would say, hey, there's seriously a problem here. And yet we don't do that uh, whenever it's people that are poor, people that we may not even know or take time to get to know when their lives are at stake. We are uh, a lot slower to speak out and say something uh, in their defense. So... Yeah. And on that note, you know, I, I think of folks that I admire, like Mother Teresa and uh, Martin Luther King. Um, they they had this consistent ethic of life, right, that they were yeah. passionately against death in every form. And they stood against the death penalty. They stood against militarism and war. Um, Mother Teresa is known, you know, for the work that she did around abortion and adoption uh, but she also called governors the night before in executions and asked them to do what Jesus would have them do. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Reminded them that Jesus said, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Martin Luther King, you know, he told, he said so powerfully in the Riverside speech that I've told kids, you know, the young people in our cities that violence won't solve their problems. But then they asked me, why does our government use massive doses of violence to try to bring the change at once in the world. And Dr. King said, I knew I could not speak against the violence of the ghettos without also speaking against the violence of my government. You know, that idea yeah. that uh, violence is always wrong, um, it, 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 that, that uh, uh, we, we need to teach our kids this consistent uh, value for life and this advocacy for life. Um, and, you know, when I look at the Bible, it's one of the things that's it's it's difficult because when you read the scripture, 
we have some of the biblical heroes. They did terrible things. Saul of Tarsus was a terrorist before his conversion. Moses killed a man in the book of Exodus and buried him in the sand. David uh, raped Bathsheba and had her husband Uriah killed in the battlefield and then went, went on to write Psalms. You know, so many of the Psalms, the biggest book of the Bible. So I often say if we believe that murderers are beyond redemption, we could rip out half the Bible because it was written by them. You know, that, that really the whole story is shorter without grace and without redemption. And the whole story of Scripture is about how God is good even when we're not. So I think it wow. does raise the innocence is massive. Um, and, and I think of all the folks that I know that were proved to be innocent, folks like my friend Derek Jameson, who spent 20 years on death row for a crime he had nothing to do with, was hours from his execution, had six execution dates. I mean, his entire life was hijacked by the death penalty and a wrongful conviction. But I also think of folks like Billy Neil Moore, whose innocence was not in question. And I believe he was guilty of murder. And yet he found Christ while he was on death row, was baptized on death row, is now a minister. Uh, and he preaches the gospel, you know? And so yeah. I think what, what's also at stake is, is the integrity of the gospel. You know, do we believe that... God, you know, as Jesus said, that that uh, uh, that grace can get the last word, that where where sin abounds, grace abounds. So, you know, it really is about the heart of the gospel. Yeah. And that that leads to another interesting question. Mentioning Saul of Tarsus specifically is what if Stephen had exercised his, you know, quote unquote, right to defend himself? Where would Paul be now? You know, where would where would all of our letters from him be? Where would the impact that he had on the world be? If he would have defended himself in some way, like Peter wanted to defend Jesus and take and had taken uh, Saul's life, then, you know, like you said, rip out half the New Testament. I mean, that's such a that's such a good point that I actually had never considered before. How many of the uh, figures in Scripture had done all these terrible things, and yet God found a way to redeem even them and. Uh, what what a powerful testimony to uh, to this cause of speaking out against uh, violence in every form. Yeah, and just to reinforce that, uh, you know, sin is makes it. We we are capable of terrible things. And the very first time that the word sin is used in the Bible is actually not in the Garden of Eden, but it's when Cain kills his brother Abel. That's the first appearance mm -hmm. of the word sin. And it's the, the shedding of blood, right? That this breaks the heart of God. And this, this sin that continues to unfold to this day and the logic, right? That even after September 11th, you kill our people and we're going to declare war on your people. Uh, that idea of an eye for an eye, even though it wasn't, you know, technically we, we would have only killed 3,000 people, which is a lot of people, but we've gone on to kill tens of thousands of people in Iraq and Afghanistan that had nothing to do with September 11th. So I think it's so important that we see Christians rise up as a force for life. And yeah. it's why I've been, my, my newest book uh, that'll come out in a few months is called Rethinking Life. And the subtitle is Embracing the Sacredness of Every Person. And it's a real invitation to kind of expand that value and passion for life uh, beyond just one issue. That's great. Hey, as that book gets released or as it nears the date, we should have you back on to to talk about that again. Uh, that would be good. Yeah, to, dude, let's do it. Um, hey, uh, one thing you mentioned, Kane. <laughs> There's so many good things that, like you say, <laughs> that I want to talk about each one of them. But uh, one interesting thing about Kane is this sort of sets the precedent for how God deals with people who <laughs> kill others, right? I mean, he said uh, in Genesis chapter four. Whoever kills Cain will suffer sevenfold vengeance, you know, and he put that mark on him so that so that no one would kill him. Uh, even God in the first murder here in Genesis four, he he gives Cain mercy. I mean, that's that's that sets a, a very powerful uh, precedent there, I think. Yeah, it's a really important point that when we think about what should we do with murder, we 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 certainly should learn from that inaugural murder. Um, and the fact that it doesn't go without consequences, you know, Cain is punished, he's exiled, um, but he is allowed to live and eventually allowed to have a family and build a city. Uh, so 
I think that's why it's so important to say to be against the death penalty is not to be against justice or to right. say that murder murder shouldn't have consequences. But it's simply to say that we refuse to deal with evil on its own terms. And, you know, folks like my friend, Reverend Sharon Risher, in her book, For Such a Time as This, she really pushes back against the cliche, the, the, you know, the cliche, forgive and forget. And she says, no, you never forget. You know, she will never forget what Dylan Roof did to her mother and her family. But that's the power of love is saying we are going to forgive and we are going to remember and we're going to declare that more hatred and violence is not the solution to the hatred and violence of Dylan Roof. In fact, mm -hmm. it's to say we're, we're going to deal with this on a whole different level and refuse to hate. And Reverend Sharon, I've heard her say, you know, I forgave Dylan Roof not so that he could sleep at night, but so that I could sleep at night because hatred, it destroys us from the inside. Yeah. You know, that's uh, another fantastic point. Uh, in one of the uh, documentaries they put out about Jeffrey Dahmer, uh, that was one of the most powerful scenes is when she goes to her pastor and she talks about, you know, the need to forgive him and how it, that hatred was tearing her up inside. And uh, that's one thing that I appreciate about, I keep going back to Wendell Berry. It's because I'm reading, I'm reading his latest book. So it's fresh on my mind. Uh, he talks about how devastating racism is to someone that you are hating, but it's also devastating to yourself as well, you know, because of the hatred that you're holding in your heart. And the same thing is true of violence. Um, you use the term redemptive violence, which I appreciate. Uh, because of some of the readings I've done in Rene Girard, and he talks about that cycle of violence that's never ending and how violence breeds more violence. And uh, in light of a few of your comments you made a while ago on 9-11 and an eye for an eye mentality, you look at uh, Afghanistan in the news in just the last few days, we're recording this in uh, mid-December, and they just announced that none of the women in Afghanistan are able to attend college anymore. And you had the young men walking out of their essays and professors resigning because of that decision. And so despite us getting that eye for an eye uh, shot back in, has their condition improved? You know, is the world a better place? Is the world a better place for us? Is the world a better place for them? You know, what what did that accomplish in the end? Um, yeah. And as much as we would like for the United States to be a beacon of light uh, or of uh, peace in the world, we have to remember that um, the United States has been the largest um, uh, dealer of weapons around the world. We've had over 150 countries that have had arms contracts with the United States. So, I mean, this is what I think baffles the mind of a, a new younger generation is that we now know that almost all of the, the hijackers responsible for 9-11 were from Saudi Arabia, right? But the United States declared war on Iraq and on Afghanistan and still sells weapons to Saudi Arabia, right? And, and you think, I mean, when I was in Iraq, I had a, this incredible Iraqi intellectual that said, your, your country is complicit in the violence of Saddam Hussein. He said, you know that Saddam has weapons because you have the receipts from them. Literally the 60 Bell helicopters that Saddam used to gas the Kurds and do horrific evil, they came from the United States. You know, they lived through the Iran-Contra scandal where we were um, arming different countries and making money off of it as they were killing one another. Um, it's, it's like if I were selling guns in my neighborhood, but trying to tell young people not to shoot each other, you know, like we continue to deal weapons around the world and, and, and to try simultaneously to be a voice for peace. So, you know, out of the some 15,000 nuclear weapons in the world, 93% um, of them are owned by two countries, the U.S. Yeah. and Russia, right? Um, I mean, we own almost half the nuclear weapons in the world. And I think we're aware that these weapons are capable of such destruction as we look at Russia and the Ukraine right now. But we also remember that the United States is the only country that has ever used nuclear weapons. 
and we did it twice. We dropped them in Hiroshima and Nagasaki and killed hundreds of thousands of people. So as Jesus said, get the log out of your own eye. We've got some work to do, you know, in the U.S. to disarm ourselves, to dismantle the death penalty, to do something about gun violence. I mean, we're leading the entire world when it comes to gun suicides and homicides. So we, we we're haunted by that violence that goes all the way back to Cain and Abel. Yeah, that, that's right. So, hey, you, you talk about there the need for action. Um, some of my listeners, they may want to get involved in that action and they don't know what that looks like. Uh, what are some organizations they could volunteer with? What are some things they could do personally uh, to help move this world in a trajectory towards that Isaiah 2 vision of turning swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks? Yeah, absolutely, man. I mean, folks can definitely go to redletterchristians.org. We're building a movement that's committed to uh, committed to Jesus. We like to say we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. You know, and one of those <laughs> things is love your enemies. And we we become pretty convinced that when Jesus said love your enemies, he meant we shouldn't kill them. You know, so we're trying to to interrupt violence. And you'll see some of the coalition groups that we're working with, like death penalty action, specifically around alternatives to the death penalty. And we've got a whole coalition nationally called Raw Tools, yeah. which gets gets our name from flipping war around. And we're turning guns into garden tools and trying to build alternatives to violence. Um, so a lot of those, you know, those, we call them co-conspirating groups are on our website at, at uh, Red Letter Christians. Um, and I would love to have more and more people to, you know, join the work that we're doing because it is gospel centered, Jesus centered work. And it's also correcting the kind of uh, theology that has holes in it, you know, and might be pro-life on one thing, but uh, isn't as, as good at championing life on another issue. Yeah, I that's the kind of life that I aspire to live as well. Uh, Jesus centered and uh, pushing for life and peace in in all in in every country, not just in our own, not just in our own backyard, but all over the world. And I believe that's what the gospel of Jesus can do. I truly do. And I know that you uh, believe that yourself, and that the organizations that uh, you're involved in, they're all working towards the same goal of of peace and restoration. As Peter said, the restoration of all things, not just you know my things or your things, but everybody's things, because <laughs> of course it all belongs to God. But that's Man, that is some that's some awesome work that you're doing here. Uh, do you have anything else to add that you want to throw out there for us? Well, I just want to say that a lot of this is not about partisanship either, right? That there's yeah. neither the left or the right, I think, completely gets this comprehensive ethic of life, you know? Um, right. and um and and when it comes to thing like things like war and militarism, it's important to remember that um you know, we keep raising the military budget every year, no matter whether it's a Republican or Democratic president. You know, Obama raised the military budget. Trump raised Obama's budget and Biden raised Trump's budget. You know, when it comes to the death penalty, uh, Biden is the first president that we've uh, had who says that he is against the death penalty. And he himself has flipped on the issue. He used to be for the death penalty. So we need him to really do more as well to abolish the death penalty. So, yeah. um, and also on, on militarism and war to stop dealing weapons to Saudi Arabia, to disarm our nuclear weapons. Um, and, and so some of this isn't about left and right. It's about right and wrong. And it's about Jesus. You know, my, my loyalty and fidelity is not to the elephant of the GOP or to the uh, donkey of the Democrats, but, but to Christ, you know, to the lamb of God and, and I think that we need to really see Jesus as the framework for, you know, how we think about immigrants. Well, Jesus said, when you welcome the the stranger, you welcome me. You know, what does it mean when Jesus is blessed are the merciful and love our enemies? And um, how might love rather than fear shape how we think about guns and, and so many of these other issues in our country? So, uh yeah. Yeah, man. I think it's it's really about centering Jesus and allowing Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount and the gospel to be, be the moral framework for how we think about all these other issues. 
that's the challenge, you know, for people who uh, read, read their Bibles every day and go to church every Sunday. Uh, it's a challenge to actually live out the, th- the things that you are, uh, the things that you're hearing and reading. And I love what you said in one of your uh, one of your books. I think you were quoting someone else, but you talked about how we talk about how we want to be born again. Right. And yet that was a conversation with just one guy, Nicodemus. And yet when we read these other passages that are just conversations with one guy, sell all you have, put down your sword, uh, you know, whatever we say, oh, that was just one guy. Why do we need to do that? But then we push so hard for this whole idea of being born again. And yet we don't advocate for putting our sword back into its place or selling all we have and following Christ or doing the other radical things Jesus uh, suggested. We just take seriously those things that don't appear to affect our lives all that much, uh, but just sort of give us a stamp of approval from our friends, our neighbors, our family, our church home, uh, you know, whatever that might be. So, yeah, I think it was the late singer songwriter, Rich Mullins. I was quoting when I first said that, uh, the Nicodemus analogy, but he also, he kind of said, uh, winsomely after that he said i guess that's why god invited invented highlighters so we can highlight the verses we like and ignore the other ones but you know, i think that's what we're aspiring to do man is to not highlight some verses and ignore the others but read read the sermon on the mount and say what if jesus really meant this stuff and yeah. that's why i resonate with gandhi you know when he was asked about christianity he said i love jesus i just wish the christians took him more seriously so let, yeah. let's yeah you know let's let's try to take Jesus at his word. And, and I think it'll transform the way that we hold our possessions, the way that we think about violence in the world. It'll uh, reshape how we think about welcoming uh, the immigrant or the stranger. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a powerful challenge. It is. It is. Shane, I love you, man. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, you too, man. Let's do it again sometime. Appreciate hey, you, brother. I hope we can. I hope we can. And I uh, hope you have a, a, Good drive and a good Christmas, good holidays, and uh, that all your ministries and your writings and all your efforts are just blessed forever and ever. I appreciate you so much. Thanks, bro. Absolutely, man.